All right. You can open up your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 7. This is not my last sermon here, by the way, so I've got a couple more after this. But the Word of God will be preached at ECC. So Zechariah 7, chapter 7 is our passage for today. <clears throat> oh Lord, I'm doing all the right things. Lord, I'm going to church. I give some of my money. I pray and read my Bible most days. Lord, I'm not committing any of the really big sins. Lord, I'm doing all the right things, or at least most of them. So why, Lord, is my life so hard? Why, Lord, are you not rewarding me for the good things I'm doing? Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? I have. I especially remember about 10 years ago when I was a missionary in China. Michelle and I were newly married. We were running a Western cafe in a very difficult city. In fact, in this city, it was the opposite of here. In that city, we looked forward to summertime. Summertime was great. Wintertime was terrible. Minus 35 degrees Celsius. That's how cold it got there in the winter. The snow never melted for months. And it was really hard. We weren't seeing the fruit we wanted to see in the ministry. The cafe we were running was a disaster. And I remember walking from my apartment to the cafe one day, about a 25-minute walk. The temperature was about minus 25. And I was thinking, Lord, why is this so hard? My wife and I moved across the world to be missionaries, and nothing is going right. It's a disaster. Lord, you owe me better than this. Uh-oh. Where is my heart in a prayer like that? When we start saying, Lord, you owe me. Sometimes when we pray, and sometimes in our Christian lives, we make demands of God. And we have a lot of questions for God. Well, this morning in Zechariah 7, the Lord is going to ask us some questions. And the Lord is going to show us what His demands are in our lives. What questions does He have for you today? Let's look at Zechariah 7. It's neatly divided into three sections, which as a preacher I love, three clear sections to go with. We're going to read through it in in chunks as we go. So we'll start with verses 1 to 3. Zechariah 7, 1 to 3. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? So in this section, we see a question. We see some people coming from one town to another, from Bethel to Jerusalem, to ask the priests and the prophets a question. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month? as I've done for so many years. Why are they asking this question? What's going on here? Will you remember where we are at in the story? I have a timeline to show you this. Remember back in 586 BC, Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians. 
It was the fall of the Jews. The temple was destroyed, and it was destroyed in the fifth month. Now we are in Zechariah, and the first six chapters of Zechariah take place in 520 B.C. They're just returning to the land, and you remember Pastor Wiley said the temple is just a slab with an altar on top. That's what the temple was in the first six chapters. But now, in chapter 7 and 8, it is two years later. It's 518 B.C., and they have made some progress on the temple. It's not just a slab with an altar. It's going in the right direction. In fact, just two to three years later, in 515 B.C., the new temple is completed. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 6. So they're making progress. They're nearing completion. They're ready to be fully restored in the land and see prosperous times again in Israel. So that's why people are coming in the text from Bethel to ask the priests and prophets, should we continue fasting in the fifth month? The purpose of this fast was to weep and mourn the destruction of the temple, which was in the fifth month in 586 B.C. So for almost 70 years, they've been fasting in the fifth month. Now the temple's almost complete, so it's a good question. It's a reasonable question. Should we continue this fast? The purpose for the fast seems to be over. Should we continue this fast? That is the question. Well, in the next section, verses 4 to 7, the Lord is going to answer their question with some questions. So let's look at what questions the Lord asks them in response here in verses 4 to 7. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me? That you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? These are the questions the Lord asks the people. The Lord is taking them from ritual to repentance. He's taking them from empty rituals to a heart of repentance and worship. He's asking them, hey, you've been doing this fast for 70 years in the fifth month and also the seventh month. The next chapter you'll see they also fasted in the fourth month and the tenth month. Four months of the year fasting. That's like four Ramadans. That's a lot of fasting that the people are doing. And yet the Lord asks them, was it for me? Why are you doing these fasts? What's the motive of your heart in this? Is this just empty ritual? Or is it out of a heart of repentance and true mourning over what has happened in the past? Is it really for me? He goes on and asks them about the times that they eat. The other eight months of the year, when you're eating and drinking, who's that for? Is it for me? the Lord asks, or is it just for yourself? Verse 7, the Lord asks them, asks them about their past times of prosperity. Back in the past when the land was full, the cities were full, everything was going great. What happened to the Jews in those times of prosperity? 
they often turned away from the Lord. Their hearts were not with him. So often in Israel's history, they're doing the right things, many of the right rituals. They're even saying the right things with their mouths, but their hearts are far from the Lord. The motive of what they are doing is not right. Is it really for me, the Lord asks? There's a lot of Old Testament verses I could show you about this, but let me show you one. Isaiah 29, verse 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And Jesus quoted this verse in the New Testament to talk about the Pharisees. Following all the rules, doing the right rituals, but their hearts are far from me. It reminds me a little bit of myself in China. Laying my life down as a missionary, but really there were selfish motives coming out in feeling like God owed me something for my service. What about you? Do you think God owes you something for the rituals you are doing? Even the good Christian things that you're doing in your Christian life, why are you doing them? What is the motive of your heart? Are you doing it for him? Or is it really for yourself in different ways? Brothers and sisters, anytime we begin to think that God owes us something, we are wandering off. If we think God owes us something, our heart is in the wrong place. God owes us nothing. In fact, if God owes us anything, do you know what he owes us? Do you know what we deserve? Judgment. Punishment for our sins. We've all sinned and turned away from God. So if we want to talk about what God owes us, that's what we deserve. For the wages of sin is death. We deserve death, even eternal death, separation from God. That's what we deserve. So be careful of thinking that God owes you something because that's what God owes you. And even as Christians, we begin to think that God owes us something. We forget that we're saved by grace. God owes us nothing because he gave us everything. He created us. He gives us our life and our breath. And then beyond that, he gave us his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. This is the gospel. This is why the gospel is good news. God doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead, he gives us what we don't deserve. Jesus dying in our place. Jesus taking the punishment we deserve when he died on the cross. God gave us that. It's a gift of grace. And so Christians, we owe God everything. He owes us nothing. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe, maybe you're in a religious system where it's kind of a, a give and take with God. You think, I do the right things, then God will give me good things. Kind of like karma or something like that. I give to God, he'll give back to me. I do some fasting, he will reward me. I give some money, he will reward me. But that's not how it works. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says our good works are like filthy rags before God. Your good works are not going to earn God's favor. 
It's not possible. He is holy. But God gives us everything, and he sent Jesus for us. And so I want to urge you today, if, if you don't know Jesus, learn more about him, read the Bible, study him, and consider putting your faith in him, believing in him that he died on the cross for your sins, and he will give you eternal life, forgiveness of sins, a clean new heart. He'll give you his Holy Spirit to fill you and guide you. These are the promises of God for all who believe. God is an abundant giver, though he owes us nothing. Brothers and sisters, may we not forget this. I see ways that we as Christians fall into this mindset of God owing us things in our Christian life. How we can take even good things, like fasting, like they were supposed to do in the Old Testament, and turn it into a selfish thing. Now, let's talk about fasting. Sometimes with our fasting, we use it to try to manipulate God or twist his arm to give us what we want. Hey, God, you see I'm fasting, right? I'm really serious about this. You've seen how many meals I skipped. I'm hungry. You see that, right? So you're going to bless me. Is that fasting for God or fasting for yourself? Fasting is good. It's a great opportunity to pray more, to worship God more, to sacrifice for the Lord. It should be for Him, but we can twist it. I see us do this with giving of money sometimes. Now, you know with the false prosperity preachers, they make these false promises like, hey, you give 100 dirhams and God will give you 1,000. Why are you giving 100 dirhams then? Is it really for the Lord? No, it's for yourself. It's just a bad investment plan. <laughs> it's for yourself. That's selfishness in giving. And I'm sure that's probably not the case here. We speak out against the prosperity preachers a lot here, so I, I trust that's not your motive. But even as evangelicals, we can fall into this trap. Not, not quite like that, but we can think, hey, I'm, I'm giving my tithe, I'm giving generously, and so I know at least God will not bring tragedy to my life. I know he'll at least give me some, some protection so that things will generally go well in my life because I'm giving money. Well, again, then why are you giving money? Is it just so that you will be safe and sound financially? Or have a nice protection in your life? And if God does bring a tragedy in your life, which he does for Christians sometimes, are you going to be angry with him or are you going to trust him? So even in our giving, we can become manipulators of God. I'll give you one more example of where I see Christians do this, and even in my own life at times. It's our personal devotions. Our quiet time with the Lord, which of course is a good thing. Our time of prayer, our time of Bible study. Many of you, I'm sure, get up early in the morning to set aside time with the Lord. Good. That's a good thing. And yet, it can be twisted into a selfish thing. Have you ever thought this? Lord, I got up early today. I gave you my 20 minutes. So you're going to give me, I'm going to have a good day, right? Surely I'm not going to lose my job today. Surely I'm going to be safe today, and, and you're going to give me a good day because I, I got up early and did my quiet time. Oh, why did you have your quiet time? Just to have a good day. And sometimes we do the opposite. I slept in. 
I missed my alarm. I didn't have my time in the morning. Now the Lord is against me. I'm going to have a bad day. I'm probably going to wreck my car or lose my job because I missed my quiet time this morning. The will of God is not dependent on your alarm clock. And if you miss your alarm, it'll be okay. But you can see how that becomes superstitious. That we think how we spend 15 or 20 or 30 minutes in the morning is going to determine the outcome of our day. You can miss your quiet time and still have a good day. God's bigger than that. He's faithful. We don't earn his favor by getting up early in the morning. We don't manipulate his will by getting up early in the morning and spending a certain amount of minutes or reading a certain amount of chapters for the Lord. So let's not try to manipulate the Lord with our practices, even our good practices. Kids, I want you to think about this. Many of you are in the kids' programs like Awana or other things. You're learning Bible verses. You may know all the right answers. Some of the kids in here have better doctrine than the adults sometimes. <laughs> they know the answers. But God's looking for something deeper even in you kids. He wants your heart. Yes, it's good to have the right answers, but where is your heart in that? Do you love the Lord? Think about that. So as we move on in our text to the final section, God has asked us some questions. He's asked you, I hope, are you doing this for me? The Christian rituals that you do, are you doing it for me? I hope you'll think about that. In the final section, God's going to give us some answers. He gave us some questions. Now he has some answers, and he's going to show us what a true heart for him looks like. So let's read verses 8 to 14. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. This is what a heart for God looks like. In verses 9 and 10, God gives us characteristics of a true believer, of what the people of God should look like. He talks about justice, kindness, and mercy, especially to the poor and needy. These are all attributes of how we treat each other. Are we rendering true judgments about each other? Are we treating each other equally, or do we show partiality? Do we speak truth to and about each other? Or are we spreading lies behind each other's backs? Are we rendering true judgments? And this is not something, these characteristics are not things we just say, okay, I'm going to go have more justice today. I'm going to be stronger in justice today. No, these are what God calls us to because this is who God 
is. These are attributes of God. God is just. All of God's judgments are true. And so as God's people, we should value justice and truth. We should render true judgments. If our hearts have really been transformed by God, we will render true judgments. Justice is an attribute of God. And that's why he's calling his people to seek justice, to render true judgments. This should manifest in our daily lives in treating people fairly, in caring about people who are hurting, like the widow, the sojourner, the poor, the orphan that are listed in chapter 10. It's the same thing here with the command, show kindness and mercy. Why? Because God is kind and merciful. The word for kindness here is the Hebrew word hesed. You don't need to know a lot of Hebrew words, but this is a good Hebrew word because it also means God's covenant love for his people. That's how it's translated sometimes in the Old Testament. So this is not just some some cheap worldly kindness, like be nice to everybody. No, this is a deep kindness of how we care for each other, committed care for each other, especially for our brothers and sisters in the church. That's why we value membership. We commit to each other and care for each other with a deep, abiding kindness. Same thing with mercy. God is so merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us love. Jesus says, be merciful as the heavenly Father is merciful. We seek these attributes in our lives because these are attributes of God. And these are especially Shown, And God is especially calling us to justice, kindness, and mercy to the most needy, to the most vulnerable, to the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, and the poor, as it says in verse 10. This is far beyond just religious rituals, brothers and sisters. God is taking us deeper than just how many minutes or how many chapters or how many durhams we give or read or pray. God is wanting a 24-hour devotion to him that manifests in how we treat others. Who cares if you get up early in the morning and read your Bible if you're a jerk to everyone the rest of the day? That's called hypocrisy. Who cares if you read your whole Bible in a year, but everyone at your work thinks you're rude and mean and, and don't reflect Christ at all? Yes, read your Bible in a year. That's good. But it should be changing us, and it should be leading to justice, kindness, and mercy in how we treat people, especially the poor. Who cares if our church has all the right programs and a growing membership and great music and all the great things a church should have if we're not caring for the poor among us? If we're not taking care of the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, and the poor in our church family? What do you think God is going to say to us? How do you think God feels about our church if we're not doing that? Read Zechariah 7. It's right here. Verses 11 to 14. These are the reasons God punished Israel and took them into exile. This is why they were scattered to the lands. God is reminding them. As the temple's being rebuilt, they're about to be back in the land in a prosperous time. God's saying, hey, remember 
You have struggled with this. Don't do it again. I want kindness. I want mercy. I want justice to the poor. That's what he wants. It reminds me of James 1.27 in the New Testament. Same thing. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Same call in the New Testament. So let's not be like the Jews that we see in verses 11 and 12 in the Old Testament who stopped up their ears, who turned a stubborn shoulder. My kids do this to me sometimes. It doesn't end well for them when they stop up their ears. Don't stop up your ears to the Lord. It says they made their hearts diamond hard. It's the hardest thing in the world, a diamond. That's how hard they made their hearts before the Lord not listening to his repeated calls toward justice, kindness, and mercy. That's what he wants to see from his people. And this ultimately comes from a heart that is transformed by God. Brothers and sisters, you can't just walk out of here today and say, I'm going to do better. I'm going to be more kind and merciful. No, you need Jesus to do this in your life. You need to pursue Jesus. You need to pursue the Lord in prayer and in repentance and pray for his Holy Spirit to fill you and change you so that justice and kindness and mercy just naturally flow out of you. And then you won't be a 20-minute-a-day Christian. You'll be a 24-hour-a-day Christian who represents Christ at work and in your building and in your family. The Spirit can do that in your life. So brothers and sisters, let's come to the Lord in repentance today. Repentance for the ways we think God owes us something. Repentance for ways we have taken good gifts from the Lord and twisted them for our selfish ends. And repentance for ways we've not shown justice and kindness and mercy to the people around us. May God change our hearts toward him in worship and toward others with kindness. Wouldn't it be awesome to be a church that looks like that? Let's pray and ask him to help us. Father, we struggle with these things. We struggle with selfishness. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking that you owe us something when you have given us everything. Father, forgive us for ways we look down on other people We've not shown kindness and mercy and justice. Help us, Lord. Help us to do the right things in our Christian faith with a a heart of love for you, of worship for you, not just so that we can get what we want. Lord, make this church a people that truly represents you and your heart. And we pray that through that, more and more people would come to know you We'd have a deeper love and commitment in our body and ultimately that you would be pleased with what you see at ECC and in us. We love you. We need your strength for this. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.